Many years ago, our church established a mission partnership with our missionaries in Venezuela, Charlie and Ruth Wallace. We went back and forth between Venezuela and here, the people visiting us from Venezuela and us visiting there, and together we built homes and churches, and we dug wells for the indigenous people, and we held medical clinics, and it was a wonderful partnership, but one of the images that stands out in my mind about those years is this one night in Venezuela when we were gathered in a cinder block building with a tin roof while it was pouring down rain on that tin roof and trying to have a worship service. And we were all straining to hear the prayers and the spoken words of the service with that rain banging on the roof. And there was a local Venezuelan pastor who was preaching in Spanish and Charlie, the missionary who grew up in Lee's Summit, would interpret the sermon as we went along. And I don't know if you realize this, but that means that a 30-minute sermon would actually take an hour. And so the Venezuelan pastor would get all excited preaching in Spanish, and then Charlie would stop and go like this so that he could remember the last paragraph long enough to translate it into English for the rest of us. And this was going back and forth for some time until finally Charlie went like this to interrupt the Spanish. And then Charlie looked at the group from Kansas City and he said the whole exact thing that had just been said, only this time he said it in Spanish. <laughs> and we all cracked up laughing as well. In today's scripture lesson in the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus and the religious leaders are gathered in a room, but they are not communicating with, un with one another very well. They are just talking right past each other. The religious leaders are talking about legal technicalities, and Jesus is talking about the mystery of life. The religious leaders are stuck thinking about what happens exactly when we die. And Jesus is focused on what happens before we die. The religious leaders become cranky and they are conniving, and yet Jesus gently embraces them with a sense of hope. It doesn't even seem like Jesus and these leaders are speaking the same language. Reading the story is almost comical because like that day in Venezuela, it seems like communication just isn't taking place. For the religious leaders ask Jesus a question about resurrection and they've just said they don't even believe in resurrection. Maybe they don't even care what answer Jesus gives. They just wanna prove him wrong. And so they pose to Jesus sort of a riddle. Let's say a woman marries a man, and he dies before they have children. So they are a good Jewish family, and they follow the laws handed down to them from Moses. And so the man's younger brother marries the woman, but then he dies, and they have no children. And so she marries the third brother, and eventually the family tragedy continues until she has been married to all seven brothers and then she dies. Jesus, they say, in this so-called resurrection, who will she be married to? And I can kind of hear them snickering in the background as they wait for his answer. They really have Jesus backed into a corner now. 
how can he possibly answer this one, he will finally have to admit that there is no such thing as resurrection. But before we criticize these religious leaders for challenging Jesus, it might be helpful for you and I to recognize that it is easy for us to fall into the same religious games that they were playing. In fact, sometimes we just have to. We, you and I, we live in the real world, and so we speak other languages like the language of accounting. This week in my box was the first quarter financial statement for the church. And I looked immediately to see what is the bottom line? Are we doing well or are we doing poorly? Do we have enough money in the bank? And of course it was all good, although it could always be better. But how can you dare measure how well a church is doing by its financial statement? We speak the language of grades, don't we? Are my grades good enough to get into the college I want to go to or into the medical school I want to go to? We speak the language of medicine. What is my PSA number today? What is my good and bad cholesterol ratio? What is my blood pressure? How many miles are you running and how many minutes per mile? We are people who are tied to the hard and fast data of life. And sometimes when we speak these other languages, we miss the holy mystery that is unfolding right before our eyes. My husband reminded me recently of a story that comes from India about the seven blind men who heard about an elephant who had come to their village, and they wanted to go and check this elephant out. They didn't know anything about elephants. And so these seven blind men asked if they could inspect the elephant by touching it. And they gathered around the elephant and they groped it. And the first man placed his hand on the trunk and he said to the rest of the group, ah, the elephant, it's like a snake. And another man rubbed his hands across the elephant's ears and he said, ah, an elephant is much like a fan. And the other person grabbed the leg and he said, ah, the elephant is very strong like a pillar or a tree. And another felt the sides of the elephant just grazing its side with his hand and he said, an elephant, I tell you, it's firm like a wall. And another touched the tail and said, it's definitely similar to a rope. And the last was certain upon examining the tusk of the elephant that an elephant was hard and smooth like a spear. Perhaps that is how we human beings are when it comes to knowing what God is like. Never can we fully grasp or know the reality of God. And often our perception of the beauty and the magnitude and the wisdom and the joy of God becomes far too small. In his dialogue with the religious leaders, Jesus refuses to talk within their categories, their language, their limited worldview, and instead, Jesus gives them an answer that absolutely amazes them. In fact, after this Q&A, they say, never again will we ask Jesus a question. They are blown away by his answer. But first, he gives an answer to the little question that they're asking. He says, the rules of marriage in this age will not apply in the next age. And he tells them that this Moses, who they are quoting, 
stood at a burning bush and called upon the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And at that moment, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were not alive. And so to call upon that God is to say that God is a God of the living, not the dead. So it only makes sense that the resurrection would happen because God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. But then Jesus goes on to say something that is what Jesus wants to say, or at least what Luke wants us to know. Jesus begins to expand their horizons on who this God is and how God can be experienced now in the present moment. First, Jesus just reminds them of that burning bush. He knows that they revere this person named Moses just as he does, and so he subtly references that story from their shared scriptures, the one about the burning bush that they no doubt all studied in Sunday school. They all recall that scene when Moses was out tending his flocks, and suddenly he looked, and next to him was a bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And Moses knew that this was the holy presence of God. He was so moved by what happened that he had to take off his shoes because he realized the place that, that he was standing on was holy ground. This was a transcendent moment, and he knew without a shadow of a doubt that God was completely present. It made no sense, and yet it gripped him completely. And surely as Jesus referenced that story, his conversation partners began to think back and realize that sure, they had had moments like that in their own lives when it didn't make any sense. And yet it seemed like God was completely present. When my husband Dave was diagnosed with cancer over a year and a half ago now, he was understandably rattled and afraid. The doctors explained that what he had was completely treatable and curable, 100% curable, with just some surgery and some radiation, and Dave had every confidence in his medical team. He was further encouraged by folks in the church who sent cards and brought meals and sent flowers. But looking back on all of that experience now, Dave says that there was this one moment when he found the most incredible strength and hope rising up. He runs three mornings a week with some guys in the neighborhood. And one day at 5 a.m. on their morning run, he announced to his guy running buddies that he was maybe going to have to miss a few of their runs in the upcoming weeks during surgery and radiation. And one of his running buddies said to him, Dave, if there comes a day when you don't have the strength to run, just come on out anyway and we'll walk with you. And if there comes a day when you can't walk, don't worry, we'll come to the house and we'll sit with you. But we are going to be with you every step of the way. A transcendent moment when the God of all heaven sat right there in the room with Dave and his running buddies and filled them with energy and light and love. Maybe you've seen a burning bush along the way, those burning bushes that defy logic but fill our souls. They can happen on a hike through Rocky Mountain National Park or in a maternity ward at St. Luke's Hospital. 
that can happen in the office, standing next to the photocopier when a coworker begins to share her story, or on the playground at Loose Park as a toddler discovers the mystery and the wonder of an acorn. But so often, we buzz through life at such breakneck speed that we don't even see the burning bushes where God's mysterious power rises up. We limit God too much, and then we complain that God seems distant or absent, when all along we are the ones that have missed the language, the category of God, that one who is bringing life and hope and joy. I love the writings of Rob Bell, a current pastor and speaker who's written a number of books, and in one of his books, he describes God in a way that no one ever described God for me when I was growing up in Sunday school. He says, I understand God to be the energy, the glue, the life, the power, and the source of all we know to be the depth, fullness, and vitality from the highest highs to the lowest lows and everything in between. His description of life is so much larger than what we sometimes think about and much more compelling. Bell describes a God who is not against science, but a God who works and can be glimpsed through the mysterious wonders of science. He says that I believe God isn't backward-focused, opposed to reason and liberation and progress, but instead God is the very one who is pulling us and calling us and drawing us and all of humanity forward into greater love and justice and connection and honesty and compassion and joy. When I read today's story from Luke, I hear him saying something broad and expansive as Rob Bell does in that broader definition of God. Jesus says, we're all, all of us, children of the resurrection. Jesus says, God, God is the God of the living. Jesus challenges the religious leaders to stop fussing about what happens when we die and to start living the resurrected life now. Resurrection is not something we earn by following the rules. Resurrection is the gift of God's presence today. If we can only understand that language of resurrection and maybe even speak that language of resurrection. Helen Prejean was 18 years old in 1957 when she decided to enter the convent. In that day and age, women who entered the convent really gave up their right to make any decisions for their own lives. She said that the mother superior decided what she would study, what kind of work she would do, the mother superior even read her outgoing letters to family and the incoming letters to the family. And one time she received a letter in the mail from her birth sister, and in the margins it said, Hello, Mother Superior, I know you're reading this. There was no individual path to joy, just doing what Mother Superior said. But all of that changed with Vatican II when the women inside the convent were finally allowed to follow their own dreams and passions. 
and she has written a memoir about that journey called River of Fire. This summer, I heard her interviewed on NPR. You may have heard of this sister, Helen Prejean, because in 1982, she was invited to accompany a man who was on death row as he awaited execution. And her story was recorded in an Academy Award-winning film called Dead Man Walking, where Susan Sarandon plays the role of Sister Prejean. Since that time, Helen has accompanied many other men who were on death row to the day of their execution, walking with them as they go through the bars of the jail cell and walking to the chamber where their lives will end. In an interview, she was asked, what is that like? What is that like to be with someone on the day of their execution? And she said, well, it depends. There are times in certain states where the custom is that I am allowed to hold their hand and walk with them and sit next to them until that very moment. And there are other situations where I am told to sit behind a glass and I can only make eye contact with this person. But each time I pray with the person, I read scripture aloud, and she said, you know, it's really not all that different from sitting by the bedside, bedside of someone in your family or a friend whom you love. By then, she says, we've been together long enough that he knows I love him and I care for him. And he knows that there is at least one person in the world who doesn't want him to die, and that's me. She said, at that moment, you're not making any long speeches. He just looks at my face, and in my face, I say, I will be the face of Christ for you. It's pure presence. That's what it is. I love that. I will be the face of Christ for you.